Welcome to our, uh, hi, I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Center for Pub uh, Women in Public Policy and uh, Women in Public Policy Program, and where we are dedicated to closing gender gaps in political and economic participation, health, and education. And um, uh, this is, I welcome, this is our last uh, seminar of, this, of, the, of the academic year, so I know. And we have a really important uh, topic today. Uh, our speaker is um, Dara Cohen, who's a professor here uh, at the Kennedy School, and she does this really powerful work on the causes and consequences of civil war and political violence, particularly looking at um, dynamics in, you know, variation in the dynamics of political violence. And the work that she is going to present today actually comes out um, of her dissertation. She, couple, she published a couple of uh, articles out of her dissertation is now working on a book project and she was coming out of uh, out of her doctor program she was actually awarded the American Political Sciences um, award for the best di dissertation in women in politics um, and this is ve really very powerful stuff that she's going to share with you so I'll leave it there and turn it over to her so please welcome uh, Dara Cohen. Thanks very much, and thanks for coming out during uh, what I know is a very busy time of year and a very blustery day. Um, as Hannah mentioned, uh, I, what I'll be talking about today is kind of an overview of my book project that I am hoping to finish by the end of the summer. Um, the kind of main theoretical piece was published as an article in the American Political Science Review this past summer. What I'm um, presenting today will cover some of the field work that I did in addition to the cross-national results which are, appear in that article. And then at the very end I'll talk a little bit about a new extension um, that I'm working on right now and just some of our initial results on that, on the consequences of um, rape in wartime. Um, all right, so just to kind of get us started and motivate the talk a bit from a policy perspective, this is a very exciting time to be working on the topic of rape in wartime. Um, there is an enormous amount of political will to do something. Um, the British Foreign Secretary William Hague and the actress Anna Angelina Jolie have joined forces to really uh, confront this issue. Hague has made sexual violence in conflict one of the kind of centerpieces of his foreign policy initiatives. Um, and this is culminating in a big global summit, the first of its kind in London um, in June uh, of this year. And so there is an enormous amount of interest, of policy movement, of um, funding going into exploring these issues, um, which is great news and really exciting as someone who studies this topic. Um, but one thing that kind of gives me pause is that um, there's still an enormous number of open questions around rape and wartime in terms of First, just even on the most basic level, where has it happened in recent years? Um, there are still a lot of debates over definitions of what do we mean by sexual violence? Um, what do we mean by rape? So I, I wanted to say at the outset that what I study in particular is a kind of narrow um, version of sexual violence. I, I focus in particular on rape in wartime, and I'll talk a bit more about, uh, about that, but I focus on, um, on rape, not the kind of broader category of, of sexual violence. Um, but just to kind of get us started, this, this uh, slide just kind of shows that there is a lot of policy movement on this topic right now. Um, but as I said, there's still a great number of, of open questions. So the two central questions in my book project are just first on the most basic level. When and where has rape during um, civil wars 
occurred. So again, the kind of scope conditions on this project, as I look at specifically at rape and specifically at the set of about 86 major civil wars that have happened from 1980 onward. Um, second, I, I consider um, why even within the a kind of puzzle, which is why even within the context of the same war, do some armed groups commit massive rape and other armed groups um, never do. And so that's kind of a, a puzzle at the center of the book. So another way of saying that is that the book examines variation in wartime rape both across civil wars and also um, within civil wars um, by the armed groups who are fighting those wars. Um, and the kind of central goal is to understand the causes, which I think is key to developing effective policy um, in order to mitigate and prevent wartime rape in the future. So just a quick outline of the talk. I hope to speak for about 45 minutes or so. I'm going to first talk us through some of the motivation for, of the project from uh, an academic perspective and discuss some of the previous research and um, how this project fits. I'll then talk through the dependent variable in this project, which is to say the variation in rape during recent civil wars. Um, and I'll talk about some data I collected and show variation both in terms of the magnitude of rape, sort of how bad it was in some places um, versus others, as well as variation in the perpetrator group. And in this project, I kind of separate the perpetrators in a kind of simple dichotomy in, in terms of state actors on the one hand and non-state actors on the other hand. So we can talk about that a bit. Um, then I'll turn to the kind of main statistical analysis which I, in which I look at how do we explain this variation that I'll show in the beginning of the talk. I'll consider some of the main existing arguments drawn from both the policy discourse and the academic literature. Um, it's not an, an exhaustive examination, but I think I test some of the more um, important and influential arguments. And then I'll discuss my argument, which I call combatant socialization. I'll turn then to a discussion of some of the macro level evidence um, on the cross-national cross statistical results. And then I'll discuss some of my fieldwork. Um, I did fieldwork in three post-conflict countries, in Sierra Leone, El Salvador, and East Timor, um, where the majority of the evidence I collected was with ex-combatants, and I interviewed them about their experiences with violence in the context of the wars in which they fought. Um, and lastly, I'll discuss this extension and some implications. All right, so to start um, on the previous research in the academic literature, a lot of the current research that focuses on violence against civilians during wartime is really focused on lethal violence, on homicide. And I've cited here some of the uh, more influential pieces in that realm. Um, and part of this is because lethal violence is simply easier to measure than our forms of non-lethal <coughs> violence. Um, sexual violence, amputation, um, forced displacement, it's much harder to measure those kinds of things. When we're talking about lethal violence, um, often scholars are just depending on kind of body counts that are reported in, in the press. Um, and another, another um, thing that comes out of this previous research is that scholars who study lethal violence often assume there's a simple correlation between lethal violations and non-lethal violations. So um, in a lot of this previous literature, they assume that when we see a lot of killing in wartime, there must also have been lots of other different kinds of violence, also including things like sexual violence. Um, but that's an assumption, and it's something that we can empirically test if we have better data on sexual violence. And I actually find that sexual violence, or I should say rape in particular, is um, is positively correlated, although not very highly correlated, with lethal violence. So I think this assumption um, is actually not empirically true. 
Um, another problem with the previous literature is that we know from a lot of uh, the work that's been done that homicide, lethal violence, is not something that's randomly experienced by wartime populations. We know that men are overwhelmingly more likely to be killed as a direct result of wartime violence than are, than are women. Um, so the result in the, in the current um, existing literature is that there's been kind of an unwitting focus on violence against men. So by focusing on lethal violence, we've really been studying violence against men in wartime. And there are a lot of open questions about, about what happens to the other half of the population in the context of war. And so this is where I think my work can fit in. Um, turning more specifically to the research on wartime rape, a lot of the research on wartime rape is currently case studies. Um, there are very few kind of large-scale studies that are comparative in nature with um, a few exceptions. And there are also in this, a lot of the previous research on wartime rape, there's a repeated focus on the same cases. And traditionally this has been a lot of studies on Bosnia, a lot of studies on Rwanda, um, and then increasingly in the kind of modern, the, the most current literature, a lot of studies on DRC. But not a lot. Of, we don't know a lot about other cases. Um, much of the civil war, much of the sexual violence literature is really focused on those three cases. Um, some scholars in this realm argue that sexual violence in wartime is ubiquitous; that it happens in every conflict, and that every armed group commits it. Others argue that there actually is quite important variation between cases and between armed groups that some groups don't commit rape. This is something that's really important, I think, from a policy perspective as well. I consider myself part of this. Um, part of this group of scholars. Um, and lastly, there's the problem of what we call selection on the dependent variable. So when scholars are interested in um, rape in wartime, they tend to study cases where we think there's been a lot of rape in wartime. But we don't really tend to study cases where there has been less rape in wartime. And in order to have a really robust argument, we also have to study um, what's, what Elizabeth Wood at Yale calls negative cases, or cases where um, rape has been more limited in order to understand the, the um, in order to really truly test the, the factors that seem to be causing rape in wartime. Um, so overall, this literature has identified a, an enormous number of explanations for rape in wartime, but there actually is not very much uh, in the way of systematic testing of, of the explanations. And so overall, there's just a lot of open questions. Um, so as I read this literature, I think there are three kind of important puzzles around rape in wartime that I hope to kind of address with the argument that I'll put forward later, but just to kind of flag these puzzles now. Um, first is one thing that we kind of know from the, the data that's been collected in a number of cases, um, and also a lot of uh, case study evidence and anecdotal evidence, is that rape in wartime seems to frequently take the form of gang rape, which is to say um, rape by multiple perpetrators. Um, and we also know that gang rape is actually a relatively rare form of peacetime violence. And this seems to be true actually cross-culturally. So that's kind of one puzzle. Why, why do we see this increase? And in some cases, a massive increase um, in, in gang rape during wartime. Second is this kind of broader question, which is how do seemingly ordinary people, um, and I'll discuss this in a, in a minute, this is a big part of my argument, but we see a lot of just kind of normal people who are abducted and join armed groups kind of uh, without any training. They're, they're not um, kind of unusual in any, in any way, but they, how do ordinary people come to commit acts of brutal violence and sometimes on a mass scale? So I'll talk about that. And lastly, there's a puzzle of how we can account for um, 
the existence of female perpetrators of sexual violence. And actually, this has been increasingly documented in the case of Rwanda, in the case of Sierra Leone, Liberia, and DRC. So when scholars have gone to these places and asked questions about not just making assumptions about um, the, the sex of the perpetrators, but actually asking victims questions about the, the sex of people that um, perpetrated the violations they experienced, um, they will sometimes report that they were um, that, that there were mixed sex groups of perpetrators. So there's kind of increasing um, evidence from a number of surveys that have been published in places like the Journal of the American Medical Association that have found that there are um, both male victims and I think kind of more, more interestingly from a puzzle perspective, uh, female perpetrators. All right, so to kind of uh, start answering some of these questions, um, I collected an original data set um, with the main motivation that in order to really have a clear understanding of where and um, to what extent rape occurred, we really need to be able to have a, a better set of data in order to draw conclusions from. So starting out with a very restrictive definition of sexual violence, and I want to make this clear because I have colleagues who also study sexual violence and include things like forced undressing, um, sexual humiliation. I'm, I'm focusing on um, rape in particular. Um, and I collected data from an annual report that's issued by the U.S. State Department um, on human rights violations. And I'm happy to talk more in Q&A about um, this, this particular report and whether it's a good source for collecting cross-national data from. I have, um, just to say briefly, a kind of separate project in which I compare data about um, rape coded from this particular source relative to other sources, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. And those are the kind of other competing annual reports on human rights violations that are often used by quantitative human rights scholars. And I find that the State Department actually reports more sexual violence than um, do those other sources. So I think it's actually a, a pretty good source. Um, that's just a brief aside, and I'm happy to talk more about that. But so I collected data from the State Department human rights country reports, and I collected um, kind of a measure of the magnitude of, of rape in each conflict year. And this is a four-point scale of, of intensity ranging from zero to three. And I'll show you in a minute about um, how I kind of defined that scale. Um, I, also, I also coded who was reported to have been the perpetrator. Was it a state actor or a non-state actor? Uh, and I think the benefit of this is that it helps us measure the relative magnitude of reported conflict-related rape in every conflict year for every civil war in this, in this period. Um, the, so the unit of analysis is uh, the conflict here in this, in this data set I collected. It has the benefit of, of drawing on the same source over time. Um, and this, I think, is an important feature of, these, um, of this particular data set. Um, but I did end up checking my coding against kind of all available NGO reports and um, other, other um, kind of partial data sets that people had collected of cases where we think wartime rape was particularly severe, and um, it, there's close agreement. Uh, so the basic finding is that there is, in fact, substantial variation, that there are some conflicts where rape is very severe, other conflicts where it's less so, and this is an important kind of first step um, in setting out the research program, that there is some variation that we can explain um, from a social scientific perspective. Um, so this is just a quick summary of the coding rules. Um, what I did with the team of research assistants is read through each of these annual human rights reports and um, look for mentions of conflict-related rape. 
And so it could range from kind of a zero, which means that there were no mentions of conflict-related rape in that particular year, all the way up to rape being reported to have been just very widespread. So it's a, it's a range, it's a scale. Um, and that's what we'll be kind of looking at in the next few slides. So we're just gonna look at some of the variation here. So here's the distribution of the highest level of reported rape during civil wars between 1980 um, and, and 2009, which is where the data set ends. This is a total of 86 major civil wars. Um, and you can see there's quite a bit of, of variation. Um, there are wars that had no reports of rape, wars that had widespread reports of rape, and in that blue box are the cases where rape was described as being kind of the worst, um, widespread, systematic, et cetera. Um, this is another way of looking at variation. This is the level of rape that was reported over time. Um, so these are the number of conflict years. Um, it's 983 conflict years, that, and this is the, the kind of number underneath the little circle indicates um, how many conflict years in that year um, had reports at each level of rape. So we can kind of generally see a trend over time where it looks like rape might be getting worse, um, that the first reports of very severe uh, rape, the kind of level three rape, was kind of in the early 90s, and it's been reported every year thereafter. And there's a big debate going on amongst kind of scholars and policymakers right now about whether, in fact, it's true that rape is getting worse over time, or whether we're getting better at paying attention to rape. Um, and I am agnostic in that debate. I don't think we can actually know the answer to that. Um, but I can show you what the data say, and the data say it's getting worse over time. Um, all right, and I'm happy to talk more about that as, as well, if you'd like. Um, so what are some of the existing explanations for this variation that we see um, in wartime rape? And there are a huge number of explanations about why we see rape in wartime, but I've kind of condensed them into, I think, the three most kind of important and um, also testable uh, arguments that um, I see in, in the literature and uh, the policy discourse. First is a set of arguments around opportunism or greed on the part of people um, who are perpetrating rape. Um, so one thread of this argument is that when the state collapses, so too do the norms that normally exist in peacetime. And there's just kind of a chaos in wartime. Um, and because of this chaos, we see, um, we see all kinds of violence, including things like sexual violence. Um, so that's sort of kind of one thread of, of this argument. Um, a second thread is that, and this comes out of um, some work done by, by Jeremy Weinstein, um, that it's possible that when armed groups have access to lootable resources, they essentially attract a, a kind of bad type, a type of person who um, is not motivated by ideology but is motivated by material gains, and therefore those kinds of people are more likely to commit violence, including more likely to commit um, sexual violence, that they're kind of bad people who are attracted to join. And this is what I call the recruitment mechanism. Um, a third thread is what, we, what I'm calling the accountability mechanism, which is sort of related, which is this idea that when armed groups rely on unaccountable sources of funding, and there are kind of a number of these that we can imagine, but things like diamonds or drugs, um, things like external funding from a diaspora, um, when they don't have to depend on the civilian population, they're more likely to abuse the civilian population. And this is an accountability mechanism. So I kind of group the three of these under this, this first set of arguments. And I test all of these. Um, I'll show you in a moment. Um, the second set of arguments deal with issues of ethnic hatred. Um, I think this, this 
group of arguments really comes out of lessons learned from Rwanda and Bosnia. Um, and scholars have argued that it's possible that rape is more likely during ethnic wars, um, where rape is used as a way of humiliating the ethnic other, for example. It's possible that rape is more likely in the context of secessionist wars, where fighters want to use rape to, um, to kind of signal to the enemy that life together is permanently over, that, that ties are permanently severed. Um, and lastly, it's possible that rape is more likely in the context of genocide. Again, um, some scholars even argue that rape is used as a tool of genocide, as a way of kind of erasing uh, a people. Um, and lastly is a set of arguments that I think is probably most prominent in some of the policy discourse right now around issues of gender inequality, with the idea that in countries or societies where women have fewer social, political, and economic rights, fewer opportunities overall, they may be particularly vulnerable during periods of war. And so in places where their gender inequality is particularly pronounced, maybe those are places where um, we see more rape when war happens. Um, so just to kind of, um, yes. Sorry. That I am not sure about, but I do know that um, it's the, one of the very strong findings about gender inequality as it relates to conflict is that there's there's kind of a robust finding that places that have kind of fewer social, political, and economic rights for women have kind of more pronounced gender inequality in general are more likely to succumb to civil war, holding lots of other things constant than our um, than our countries that are um, are more gender equal. So um, I'll return to that point actually in a minute, but I'm not sure about the kind of relationship with, with peacetime rape. I, I kind of would imagine that that's so, but it's a little bit hard to, to test um, because the data problems are so severe. Um, so turning now to my argument, which I call combatant socialization. Um, my argument is that groups that randomly recruit their fighters by force uh, face a kind of central dilemma, which is how do they create a coherent armed group out of people that don't trust each other and have no reason to trust one another. And I think I, I argue in my project that there's sort of two forms of, we can kind of think of forced recruitment as, as having two forms. Uh, one is a strong form of forced recruitment in which fighters are just literally abducted off the street. Um, and this often is random, it's very violent, and it's very sudden. I think just to kind of preview my argument, that particular form is, um, is it turns out to be more important in terms of predicting uh, which groups use rape. Um, the, other, the other form is kind of a weaker form, which is uh, forms of coercion. Um, and this includes actually conscription by states, for example. Um, and this allows individuals some degree of agency, which I think turns out to be really important. Um, it often is more gradual and is often facilitated by social ties where one might kind of convince um, your, your friends or your family to join a group with you. Um, so those are kind of two forms of, of forced recruitment. I test both of those in the cross-national argument. Um, I argue that the level, the level of cohesion, social cohesion within an armed group is a very important determinant for the level of violence, for the type of violence that armed groups commit. And this is true in the case of gang rape. Um, and just to kind of briefly define what I mean by cohesion, I mean not just the kind of social bonds between fighters, but cohesion also offers um, something else to fighters in the context of wartime. It offers protection, food, and shelter, um, which 
often are limited in the context of, um, of the chaos of conflict. And cohesion also allows armed groups just to function on the most basic level, just to be a coherent group. Because again, these are groups that are recruiting random strangers by force. And so they need to be able to come together as an armed group. And I, just to preview the argument, I think gang rape actually allows them to create social ties. Um, all right. So the kind of major point here is that violence, and in particular sexual violence, I think increases this, this social cohesion uh, within armed groups. And this argument comes out of research in sociology, um, but the, the main idea is that institutions that have kind of a constant influx of new members of, of strangers into the group will turn to this costly group violence. And I'll re return to that, that phrase in a moment. In order to help organize the structure of the group, so to have people within the group sort of signal that they're, in the context of, say, rebel groups, that they're a real rebel, that they're sort of here to, that they're here to stay, that um, to kind of um, signal their sort of masculinity and, and their, um, their, their desire to, to be considered a, a, a strong fighter. And it helps also create bonds between the members of the group. And so scholars have traced this, this sort of thing happening in the context of armed groups, but also in the context of street gangs, in the context of prisons, again, where violence is helping organize the structure of groups that might other, otherwise be sort of incoherent. Um, the, one other kind of influential study that I have um, really drawn on in my work is a study by a scholar named Donna Winslow, who studies what she calls non-conventional methods for pr promoting unit cohesion in the Canadian Air Force. And the Canadian Air Force um, was involved in a scandal in the 90s um, where they were using um, kind of sexual humiliation actually on each other, not on non-combatants, the way I will argue in a minute, but um, in order to kind of promote unit cohesion within the Canadian Air Force. So I think a kind of similar thing is happening um, in what I'm talking about here, where this sort of um, violence, and particularly se sexual violence, is used to, to create cohesion within units. Um, so gang rape is not the only way this can happen, but I think it's one of the more powerful ways that um, unit cohesion can be increased. Um, in the literature on gang rape, uh, we know from that literature that, um, from, from interviews with perpetrators of gang rape, that um, gang rape often increases the status of the perpetrators with other perpetrators. So this, um, the victim is often not the target of the crime per se, is, is often what, what, what perpetrators are reporting, but actually as a vehicle for the process of the perpetrators to kind of communicate with each other. Um, and I think also importantly, from we know from the criminological literature that perpetrators of gang rape, at least in the context of peacetime, are somewhat less pathological than perpetrators of rape who perpetrate their crimes on their own. That, in fact, uh, perpetrators of gang rape are much more similar to perpetrators of other forms of group violence than they are to perpetrators of um, single violence. And I think this gets at one of the puzzles that I mentioned earlier about kind of how it is that ordinary people um, can commit terrible violence on a mass scale, and part of it has to do with these kind of group dynamics. Um, so one of the things that I argue in my book is that gang rape is a costly form of group violence. Um, and it turns out that this is something that a number of people um, have sort of argued the opposite. Uh, this, is some, uh, so this includes kind of scholars. Mia Bloom has argued in her work that rape is, is relatively cheap 
as a, t as a kind of tool of war, as it were, that it doesn't require advanced weaponry. Eve Ensler has also said that um, it's a very cheap method of warfare, and William Hague has even said that rape destroys opponents cheaply, with the idea being that um, rape is essentially exacts no costs on the perpetrators, um, and so um, this is by way of explaining why it's used so often. Um, but I think actually the risks for perpetrators, both individuals and armed groups, has really been overlooked in a lot of the, certainly a lot of the political science research, but really in, um, overall. Uh, one example of this is that during my fieldwork in Sierra Leone, it became apparent that sexually transmitted infections were just rampant during the, the civil war there, um, and in particular gonorrhea and syphilis. And the fighters that I interviewed were reported to me that sort of everyone knew this. Um, and it sounds like a could be a trivial point, but it actually turns out to be quite important because they didn't have access to treatment for these sexually transmitted infections. And so by participating in acts of, of gang rape, um, they actually, it, it harmed their ability to function as fighters. They were unable to walk and run in some cases. And so that raises a puzzle for us, which is why would you engage in this particular form of violence if it is kind of harming your ability to um, function as a fighter? Um, gang rape also is costly in terms of time. It takes more time to commit a gang rape than it would um, that for other forms of violence that we might imagine. And lastly, and this is sort of uh, more arguable perhaps, um, gang rape takes, uh, may carry a kind of greater emotional toll for perpetrators who are coerced into participating than um, would other forms of violence that are kind of less intimate or personal. Um, so, but I think the overall point here is that rape must be somewhat costly or else we wouldn't see um, the variation that I just showed you that is documented. It must be somewhat costly from the perspective of the perpetrators or else we it would be ubiquitous if it has kind of these, um, uh, uh, if it is so cheap, I guess, um, if, if it has these all these wonderful benefits um, in terms of um, signaling, um, you know, the in, in, in secessionist wars or that sort of thing. Um, so the kind of to summarize the theoretical portion here, the desire to fit in overall is a very powerful motivator for group violence and for um, group sexual violence. And that conditional on being trapped in an armed group, on being abducted into an armed group, the benefits of cohesion that an individual sees, including kind of access to food, access to protection, um, not to mention also social bonds, um, tends to outweigh the costs of rape that I just um, described. And so the rest of the talk, I will talk about kind of how I established the argument. So first I'll show um, through the cross-national data a link between this extreme form of forced recruitment abduction, which is used both by states and by rebel groups. Um, to, there's a, a correlation between abduction and wartime rape, controlling for lots of other potential confounds. Um, and then through my field work, I show that there is a link between abduction and low cohesion and then low cohesion and, um, and, and, and rape. So, yes? I'm sorry, I came late, so you may have talked about that before, but did you talk about other costs of rape? For example, all these costs of the labor, uh, persecution, or social costs, ostracism, or other things that you might also see? From the perspective of the perpetrator? No, I, I actually didn't talk about that so much, in, in part because the conventional wisdom is really that rape is costless. Um, and, you know, from the perspective of any one particular perpetrator, so few people are ever prosecuted for committing rape in wartime, it's not really rational to sort of fear prosecution. Um, so it's, it's not enough of a cost, I think, um, from the perspective of the individual. Um, 
Uh, so turning briefly again to the, the uh, puzzles that I outlined earlier, I think the argument that I just presented can help us resolve some of these puzzles. First, why, why rape in wartime often is a form of group violence. Um, secondly, about how ordinary people, once they're in the context of armed groups, can be drawn into group violence, including group sexual violence. Um, and lastly, I kind of didn't talk so much about um, the role of, of gender in all of this, but we do see cases where when women are abducted into groups, they also participate in acts of, of gang rape. Um, and I actually have a separate article that was published this past August where I look at female perpetrators of gang rape in the context of Sierra Leone. So women who were abducted to join the RUF who then um, participated in acts of, of gang rape against non-combatants. Um, and I'll show some interview data along those lines in, uh, towards the end of the talk. Um, so turning to the cross-national data, um, I mentioned a bit earlier that I collected kind of new cross-national data looking at um, the dependent variable, um, rape, uh, both um, in terms of how much it varied in each conflict year along the kind of magnitude, zero to three, um, and also in terms of who was reported to have perpetrated it, whether state actors or non-state actors. I also collected the central independent variable, which is how did armed groups recruit their fighters? Um, and I, again, I'm, what I'm arguing here is that random force recruitment is a reliable proxy for this kind of low levels of internal cohesion. So I asked this, I, was, I used actually the same source, the uh, US State Department reports, and I looked for were there ever reports of forced recruitment, either strong forms of forced recruitment in which fighters were literally kidnapped into um, state militaries or insurgencies, or weak forms of forced recruitment in which fighters were reported to have been coerced or conscripted, either, again, by states or um, insurgents. So again, the sample that we're looking at here is about three decades of major civil wars, um, which includes 86 wars and almost 1,000 conflict years. This is just a list of the additional variables that I use in the statistical analysis. I'm happy to return to those if you have kind of questions or thoughts on what are the variables I ended up deciding. Um, the one thing I did want to say about, um, to, I'll say a little bit more about is on the issue of gender inequality. This is obviously an incredibly difficult thing to measure um, and to, um, to, to kind of put into a cross-national regression. So I used a number of the kind of most common uh, variables that people use in quantitative research when we're trying to get at issues of gender inequality. Um, one of the more reliable ones, uh, or one of the kind of more, one of the consensus measures um, of, of um, gender inequality are fertility rates, in part because they're so widely available, um, they're relatively reliable, and we sort of assume that when fertility rates are particularly high, um, that kind of captures a lot of other stuff around issues of gender inequality that we aren't able to directly measure. Things like um, women's lack of bargaining power within the household or lack of education and that sort of thing. So, um, but I do, I use fertility rates um, as kind of the main variable of gender inequality, but I also look at a number of other variables, including measures of women's um, political, social, and economic rights. Um, so uh, this, this is just a description of the statistical analysis that I ended up doing. I'm not going to show the table per se, but I will talk through the results. So what did I find? Um, first, I found that there was strong support for the combatant socialization argument, that wartime rape by both insurgents and states was strongly associated with this kind of extreme uh, forms of forced recruitment 
uh, with abduction and press ganging, um, but not the weaker forms. And I think that this is an important finding because it, it um, in in the stronger forms of forced recruitment, that that those are cases where we probably see the lowest levels of internal social cohesion. If you've been abducted into an armed group, you're very unlikely to feel, um, at least initially, kind of socially cohered with the people who have just kidnapped you. Um, Second, I find kind of mixed support for the opportunism and greed types of arguments. Um, I do find that state failure and contraband funding are associated with uh, insurgent violence, but not violence by states. Um, and the kind of main message here is that it seems that the type of funding matters. So diaspora funding wasn't so important, but actually contraband, so drugs and diamonds, turn out to be um, significant. So it's possible that contraband can be used as a kind of selective incentive by armed groups. Um, and this suggests that, that what's at work here might be that recruitment mechanism that I mentioned earlier, rather than the accountability mechanism, that it's possible that groups are kind of selecting bad types as opposed to this sort of idea of unaccountable funding. Um, so I think just as importantly are where we didn't find support. And so in terms of the ethnic hatred arguments, I found no support for, for those arguments at all. So it's not the case that ethnic war and secessionist war are systematically correlated with wartime rape. Um, and in fact, genocide actually is negatively associated with, with rape in wartime. So although it, it may be the case that in, in cases like Rwanda and, and Bosnia, um, ethnicity was um, kind of a motivating factor for those particular cases, it's not the case that that is kind of commonly true, that ethnic wars are more likely to be characterized by, by rape in wartime. Um, and this finding about genocide, I think, is particularly interesting that genocide is kind of negatively correlated with, with reports of rape in wartime. And it may suggest something around a pollution norm, where um, those who are perpetrating the genocide may be particularly unlikely to um, commit acts of rape because of fears of sort of, um, of, of pollution. Um, also interesting, I did not find any support for any of the gender inequality variables, which is to say that none of the proxy measures that I used were significant in any of, um, in any of the models that I estimated. And I do want to say something here to kind of get back to the question you asked earlier, which is that it's been well established that countries that have more pronounced gender inequality are more likely to succumb to civil war. But given that a war has already started, um, it doesn't seem that gender inequality can then help us understand which wars will be more likely to be characterized by rape and which are less likely. All right. Um, so to... Sorry, just a quick question on the last slide. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, a little bit about the difference between the first one and the second? So combatant socialization, is the argument that forced recruitment um, is one mechanism for increasing socialization, but then in No, they're two completely separate arguments um, that I was kind of testing against each other. So we find strong support for this idea that um, people who are forcibly recruited in armed groups that use forcible recruitment are more likely to commit rape in the context of war. Um, but we also find kind of limited support for when fighters are volunteering, so a kind of different class of fighters, that, um, that they may be more likely to commit rape if the group has used 
contraband as part of their funding. Um, and part of that explanation may be because the group is then is using diamonds or drugs or, um, or kind of other sorts of contraband in order to attract fighters, with the argument being there that um, when groups use material incentives, they're attracting people who aren't simply motivated by, by ideology, kind of this, this idea of a, the bad type of fighter who may be more likely to abuse civilians. You mean controlling for? I understand. Like the, argue, the theoretical argument is that you're going to attract people. You're going to attract in bad types if they're if, if you if you offer like goodies, contraband, stuff that they might want to steal, stuff that they could get access to. Like you come come with us, and you're going to get access to all those things that you'd like to have, right? Yeah. And so that then I think to test that, you'd want to look in particularly at the weak cases. But I wonder if partly what she was getting at. I mean, is that also if I were walking down the street and I were going to pick up people fight with me, I would go for tougher, more criminal-looking types than I would, like, you know, professors or something, you know, because I would think they would be a lot more useful for me. But the probably, I think what you did in the regression is you controlled for opportunism greed, and you still found your interaction effect with combatant socialization, or you found the effect of kind of the main effect of combatant socialization, yes. controlling for opportunism yes. greed. Yes, 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 yeah. right, yes. Um, could I maybe hold off on questions until I just want to make sure I can get through the, the rest of the talk and we can return to, to unless they're kind of clarifying questions. No? Okay. Um, so to just kind of look at the, the effects of um, what this kind of means. Here I show the probability of wartime rape at each of the levels of rapes of so 0, 1, 2, and 3, given abduction or no abduction. Um, so abduction is the red and no abduction is the blue. And all of the other variables that were included in the analysis are held at their median values. And you can see that at every non-zero level, so of the last three um, sets of bars there, uh, the probability is greater in the case of abduction. Um, and we see a similar pattern also for state-perpetrated rape, that at every non-zero level, the probability of rape is higher in the case of um, abduction. I'm going to sort of transition out of the cross-national data and then now turn to the micro-level evidence. So um, hopefully I've convinced you that there is an association between kind of strong, um, strong uh, forms of forced recruitment and reports of wartime rape on the macro-level. But how does this actually work on the micro-level? So in addition to the cross-national analysis, I did fieldwork in three post-conflict countries. Um, and I chose them because there was important variation both in terms of the level of reported rape in that conflict and also who was reported to have perpetrated it. So um, the kind of biggest case that I did, the, I spent about six months in Sierra Leone. Um, Sierra Leone is a, is a case of kind of high rape, uh, where rape was reported to have been widespread. And the main group of perpetrators was the RUF, one of the, the rebel groups, uh, insurgent perpetrators. Um, I also did field work in East Timor. Again, a, a case of high rape, particularly during the 1999 crisis there. Um, and this, the perpetrators were mainly the state, the Indonesian military and the militias that were reported by, the, supported by the Indonesian military. Um, and lastly is the case of El Salvador, which I chose because it's, uh, it was a, 
relatively low, um, maybe more moderate, but certainly lower than the other two cases, uh, case of, of, of rape. And the perpetrators there were mainly the, the Salvadoran military. The, the rebel group, the FMLN in El Salvador, was basically reported to have committed no sexual violence. So again, some really interesting variation here. Um, so what did I do in each of these cases? I conducted interviews and focus groups with former fighters and with non-combatants. And the data that I'll be showing you today mainly draws on the interviews uh, with the former fighters. Um, and the purpose of, the, of, these, of these interviews was to really explore this proposed mechanism on the micro level. To, kind of probe this idea of whether rape actually does increase cohesion. So what I wanted to kind of look for is whether committing acts of gang rape together seemed to promote cohesion or was it something that was more um, divisive. And I also wanted to try to evaluate support for some of the observable implications of the, the alternate arguments. Um, here's just a, a slide to, that kind of summarizes the the fieldwork in each of the cases, both the kind of number of trips I took, the number of people I interviewed, and also how I tried to triangulate um, some of the interview data with other existing um, data, both um, surveys that other people had collected and uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, uh, testimonies that were given um, if they had occurred in that particular case. Um, Again, just kind of briefly on the interviews. Each of the interviews I conducted were sort of a semi-structured interview with a focus on talking to the person that I was um, interviewing about their experiences with either uh, with violence as either a fighter or as a non-combatant in the context of the war. Um, I, I often get asked about issues of veracity, particularly um, conducting interviews on very sensitive topics. And so I'll just kind of briefly say that all of the interviews were completely anonymous. Um, this was part of my IRB approval uh, for conducting these interviews. So I had to make very explicit that um, I was not working for the special court in Sierra Leone. I was not um, um, you know, ever going to record their name. So all of my interviews were completely anonymous. Um, I often actually was not fully explicit about the topic that I was interested in. So I didn't kind of conduct, um, I didn't approach people and tell them I was doing a project on rape in wartime. Um, I explained that I wanted to hear about the war violence from the, their perspective. Um, and often, in certainly in the cases where rape was particularly widespread in East Timor and in Sierra Leone, um, the if the subject, if the person I was speaking with kind of broached the issue of rape first, which often happened, because these are cases these are places where rape was extremely widespread, I then would ask follow-up questions. So I allowed the interview subject to kind of broach the topic of sexual violence first. Um, and people often ask, well, why do you believe the, especially the fighters that you've spoken with about what they're reporting? Um, and I think one of the interesting things that came out, um, particularly in the context of Sierra Leone, is that fighters often explained the violence that they themselves committed um, as really counter to their self-interest. So we might expect them to say something like, well, I was ordered to commit rape. That's why I did it. I had no choice. Um, they very rarely describe the violence that way. Um, so again, I think that sort of, um, that's, that kind of lends credence to um, their, their explanations. Um, so just a brief summary of what I found from my field work across the three cases, and then I'll turn more specifically to some of the interview evidence. Um, First, I found that um, most of the rape that uh, was reported, and we can sort of talk about maybe some of the biases in, in question and answer, but most of the rape that was reported, both to me and to in the other sources with which I triangulated, was rape by multiple perpetrators. And again, this kind of gets back to the central puzzle, which is why do we see such an, an incredible increase in multiple perpetrator rape during wartime? 
Um, second, and this is really important for my argument, rape was often public or at least observable by other fighters. In order for rape to have this kind of uh, cohesion um, purpose, it, it really has to, or cohesion effect, it really has to be observable by other people. It can't simply be behind closed doors. Um, third, I found reports in cases where there were um, abducted fighters of both sexes, there were perpetrators of both sexes. And again, that's the case of, of Sierra Leone. Um, I found that there was a kind of correlation across armed groups. So uh, in the armed groups that used extreme forms of forced recruitment, such as abduction, most often, those were also the groups that tended to be reported as perpetrators of rape most often. Um, there's also kind of a, a temporal variation as well. So in as over time, as um, we can kind of trace to the extent that we can, the data is kind of the uh, of highest quality in Sierra Leone, but we can see over time as abduction increased or waxed and waned, so too did reports of gang rape. Um, so I think that's um, some strong supportive evidence for my argument. Um, six is some of the kind of interview evidence that I'll talk through in just a moment. Um, and seven also comes out of the interview evidence, but I think this is really important. In both of the cases that I did field work, uh, where rape was incredibly widespread in the context of those conflicts, almost no one reported that it was ordered from the top down. Rape was something that seemed like it was organized by the rank and file from the bottom of the fighting units. Um, I think this is a really important point, particularly for policymakers who are concerned about kind of mitigating um, rape in the future. And lastly, there are some sources of really interesting in-case variation. So in Sierra Leone, there was one group, the CDF, that changed their recruitment practices over time. They started with more voluntary practices. They ended with more with abduction, actually. And as my argument would predict, uh, the CDF sort of changed their practices around rape as well. And so by the end of the war, when they were recruiting a lot of their fighters through abduction, they were also committing a, a much more rape than they had been reported to earlier in the war. Um, and lastly, also in East Timor, we see kind of similar in-case variation where once the Timorese militias that were involved in the 1999 crisis started press-ganging strangers into their, their organizations, we then see a spike in rape, and that kind of corresponds to a, a lot of the violence that we see in the 1999 crisis. Um, so looking briefly at some of the interview evidence that I think supports this idea of combatant social socialization, First and, and foremost is this, again, this idea that rape was something that was cohesive for the fighters. We could have expected to see um, fighters or to hear fighters in the interviews that I conducted with them to describe rape as something that made them sort of disgusted with each other, disgusted with themselves. It's not the way that we actually do see it described, um, where they, they talk about um, kind of social pressure, um, that they would laugh about it, that it was something that sort of created social bonds. Um, very rarely did I hear reports that rape was something that was dividing the group. Um, secondly, it was um, generally reported that rape, again, was not ordered from the top down. And I think this is also an important point because it's directly counter to the interview subject's self-interest to report it this way. So in Sierra Leone, one fighter said, our commander told us that our purpose is to fight. Right? So their commander wasn't even necessarily all that supportive of the idea of them of committing rape. Um, and in East Timor, kind of similar types of things were reported. Uh, militia fighters said that rape was an individual act. It was personal. It was based on the morality of each person. And this is, these are kind of remarkable statements in the context of places where rape was incredibly widespread. Again, sort of not, not, um, not a lot of evidence that it was ordered from the top down. 
Um, there was a very strong social pressure to participate, which I think is is an uh, important piece of this combatant socialization argument. Um, a fighter in Sierra Leone said that you know new recruits kind of never wanted to participate, but we basically pressured them into doing so. Um, and lastly, again, there's this, I think one of the um, really interesting pieces of this is that there were participants of both sexes when both sexes were abducted, that this kind of mechanism of combatant socialization is, um, is gender blind, that it, it affects both men and women. And so um, in this particular uh, quotation, um, someone was describing to me how women would also be involved in, in rapes in Sierra Leone. Um, so I also considered some of the, the main alternative arguments, the kind of same three sets of arguments. Um, and I consider these um, in the book project on a very micro level in each particular case, but just a kind of broad overview. Um, first is this idea of opportunism and greed. Do we really see support for that? And I think one of the most important pieces of evidence against this opportunism greed argument is that we see rape is not just committed by these bad types who might conceivably be attracted to, um, to armed groups because of material gains. It's also committed by people who were abducted. And in the case of, of Sierra Leone, again, the RUF was almost entirely comprised of abductees, yet they also committed the vast, vast majority of the rape. So these are just ordinary people who were abducted into, into groups. Um, Secondly, what about ethnic hatred? Well, in these three cases, I actually chose them in particular because they were not conflicts that the major cleavage was, was, was ethnicity. And we see very little evidence of ethnic targeting being kind of a, a motivating factor um, of the violence. And in fact, in interviews, um, and also in some of the triangulated evidence from, for example, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, very few victims describe their perpetrators as their co-ethnics in these conflicts. Um, or sorry, they, they often described their perpetrators as co-ethnics in these conflicts. So we don't see um, kind of ethnic cleavages being um, an important motivator there. Um, we would expect the opposite if, if it were. Um, and lastly is this issue of, of gender inequality. And again, if we're seeing um, armed groups in the context of the same um, culture, of the same country, where everyone is affected by the same kind of patriarchal norms, yet uh, we still see that there's really marked variation across armed groups, that you know, some of the groups in, in Sierra Leone committed lots of rape and others didn't, even though they're all sort of in, embedded in the same patriarchal culture. I think, again, these kind of arguments about gender inequality don't really help us understand the, the variation um, that we really need to understand if we want to get to the root causes of rape in wartime. Um, I'm just going to finish up kind of quickly here. So the conclusion of the book I, is, um, is that this analysis, I think, supports a new argument, the combatant socialization, socialization argument, to explain this really remarkable variation that we see um, in wartime rape. And overall, that the random abduction of strangers seems to explain variation in where we see rape better than a lot of the rival explanations, than a lot of the conventional wisdoms. But I do want to say this argument, this combatant socializa socialization argument, does not explain every case of rape in wartime, and probably does a particularly poor job of the cases that we know best, the Bosnia-Rwanda uh, cases. Um, those are cases where it seems that rape was ordered from the top down in a very kind of organized way. Those are highly, um, those are bitter ethnic conflicts. Again, I think those, those are probably anomalous cases in some very important ways. 
Um, second, I think circumstances matter, the kind of general circumstances in which uh, civil wars are happening. So state collapse, complete state collapse, does seem to create opportunities that increase um, wartime rape. Um, and similarly, access to lootable resources for insurgents also seems to create opportunities for um, increased wartime rape, um, as, as we discussed a bit earlier, that lootable resources seem to be maybe particularly corrupting or to attract a type of person who is more likely to commit um, rape in wartime. Um, and finally, as I mentioned before, there is really quite limited, or in some cases no, uh, support for a lot of the conventional wisdoms that we have about um, causes of rape in wartime. And I want to be just very careful in particular about this gender inequality um, issue because, as I said, gender inequality does a great job of helping us predict when conflict happens. But once conflict has already started, it sort of fails to help us distinguish between cases that have really high levels of reported rape and those that don't. Um, so just to kind of briefly talk about an extension beyond the book that I'm a new paper that I'm working on now, um, I'm starting to do a, to work on a paper that considers some of the the macro level consequences of of rape in war um, for this set of of uh, major civil wars over the last three decades. Um, it's often assumed in a lot of um, the literature that rape is just devastating. And we don't know if it's kind of permanently devastating or devastating in the short term or the medium term, but it's often assumed to be devastating for individuals, for families, for states. Um, and this is supported by a rich wealth of evidence from a lot of, of case studies and from kind of personal testimonies on up. Um, there's also some kind of, in some ways, competing at micro level evidence that exposure to some forms of violence uh, can actually be positive in some ways that um, there was a scholar, Chris Blattman, who did a study in Uganda that found that exposure to violence um, in Uganda actually increased political participation. So um, children who had been abducted into the Lord's <coughs> Resistance Army were more likely to be politically active um, after the end, or after they kind of returned home, um, than were those who had never been abducted as fighters. So there are potentially some positive consequences to having been exposed to violence as well. So there are a lot of open questions about um, ways that rape um, might either have positive or negative consequences for um, societies and for individuals. Um, the initial results from this paper are that, uh, first, that wars with widespread rape actually seem very difficult to end relative to wars without widespread rape. Um, and we're kind of starting now to do some theorizing about why that might be. But basically, the kind of episodes of peace that happen in the context of civil war are much less durable in cases where there were there was a lot of reported rape versus cases that are similar in a lot of ways um, to those wars, but just simply didn't have a lot of reported rape. So um, we're doing some thinking about why that might be now. Um, but the other kind of interesting thing we find, and this could be, again, a problem of data quality, but we don't see, we test an, a very large number of variables that get at kind of health consequences. So we look at HIV rates, um, we look at maternal mortality rates, infant mortality rates, we look at a lot of economic factors, kind of factors uh, relating to political participation, including voter turnout in the aftermath of the war. Um, we look at some kind of social variables as well. We see kind of nothing significant. So, which is to say that the impact of rape it does not really have a generalizable systematic effect for any of these variables um, across the, the set of cases that we're looking at. It's, it does not say, I want to be careful here, that, um, that there are no effects on any of these, in any of these realms, but it's just that we can't kind of say there's a generalizable systematic effect um, for, for any of these particular variables. 
All right, so it's my last slide here. So what are some of the implications of this work for policy? I think probably the most important implication is that in places where we see widespread rape, high levels of reported rape, this does not necessarily imply that rape was being used as a military strategy, something ordered from the top down by a commander with a military purpose in mind. Um, that rape can actually occur on a very widespread scale the way it did in Sierra Leone and I think in East Timor during the 1999 crisis without any kind of um, direct orders from the top down. And this, I think, has, has very important implications for policymakers who are interested in developing um, interventions. Uh, secondly, I think there are some kind of legal implications as well relating to this, which is that the kind of chain of command evidence that prosecutors are often looking for, looking for evidence of um, orders being given, again, from the top down, is actually likely to be very rare. Um, and I think this is especially important because there is just an enormous focus right now. I showed in the very first slide of the talk how there's, all, there's a lot of political will. A lot of that discussion and the global summit that is happening in June, a lot of the discussion there is focused on this idea of prosecution um, being kind of the way forward as a, as a, as a, as a way of deterring future perpetrators. Um, and I'm, I'm actually very skeptical of, I think there's lots of reasons why we might want to focus on prosecution, but as a tool of deterrence, I'm quite skeptical that that is something that will, that will prevent or mitigate rape in the future. Um, third, I think the, this project kind of cautions about generalizing from some of the widely studied cases, from Bosnia and Rwanda, which again are very bitter ethnic wars. Um, and probably also from DRC, which in some ways seems to be, at least from what I know about it, and I haven't studied DRC in a huge amount of depth, but it seems to be a bit of a case apart. Um, it's a very chaotic and difficult to understand conflict situation there. Um, so it's, it's hard to kind of draw generalizable lessons from the rape that we see in those conflicts. Um, I, it's possible that abduction of fighters by armed groups could be used by policymakers as kind of an early warning sign for, for wartime rape. So if you believe the findings that I presented today, it's, it's, this is something that we could be paying attention to as a, as a, um, a way of um, kind of an early warning system uh, for where we might see rape in the future. Um, and lastly, just about the kind of extension piece that I just presented, I think we really do need a lot more systematic study about the conditions under which the consequences for wartime rape are the most severe. We just a, a huge number of open questions about, about that. Um, and so that's kind of where that paper fits in. But I will end there. Um, and I look forward to your, your questions. Thank you. Should I field my own yeah, questions? Yeah, or? Unless okay. you want me to. If you want. No, I'm happy to, to do it myself. Um, yes, in the back. Thank you for such an interesting presentation. Um, I'm wondering if you compared the, you know, you, if, if how, how does the thinking about rape apply to other forms of theoretically non-lethal violence, such as perhaps the agitations in Sierra Leone? Did you, did you look at that at all? So my study is really limited to rape. Um, I think in some ways rape is um, a somewhat unique violation because I think the, the kinds of norms of masculinity that are communicated between perpetrators in an act of gang rape are different from, from the kind of norms or messages that may be communicated in acts of other forms of group violence like 
um, group amputation, which happens a lot in those contexts of Sierra Leone. Um, so I, I, I haven't studied it, but I do think that um, there, it's probably a, th those forms of violence probably have different consequences than do um, forms of group sexual violence. there to be sort of variation between whether the perpetrator is a rebel group or a government actor, state actor, or is that a, a distinction that we don't need to make? Or the second one is sort of would you see, um, uh, this is maybe beyond the scope of your study, but would you see that instances of rape are much more likely in territory that has been recently uh, taken by a rebel group versus uh, a territory that is more firmly in their control? Uh, thanks for those questions. Um, so one of the forms of variation that I didn't show is that, um, and this is kind of counter to the conventional wisdom, that a lot of rape is committed by rebel groups like the RUF, for example, kind of unruly rebel groups. Um, most of the, the vast majority of the reported rape in the data that I collected was perpetrated by state actors. Um, and this could be an artifact of the of the sources that I'm using. So the State Department, uh, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch may simply be more likely to report violence by states than violence by non-state actors. Um, but I, given that that finding actually has been echoed in several other scholars' studies as well, um, it's probably the case that states are more likely to use, um, to, to, to perpetrate acts of rape um, in the context of war than our rebel groups. And then the question is why? Um, you know, I think my theory would suggest that um, states that are using abduction may be states that are particularly unlikely to um, train their fighters, uh, weak states that are particularly unlikely to offer training to their fighters. And so there's kind of a, an especially large need to use other methods for um, group bonding in, in those cases. Um, but, I, you know, that's, that's just one hypothesis and there's lots of other potential explanations. It does seem that in the data that I collected that a lot of the um, rape by s perpetrated by states that is reported in those documents often happens in the context of detention. So um, in El Salvador, for example, a lot of the rape that was reported in those sources um, was used by the Salvadoran uh, military in the context of, of detaining guerrillas or suspected guerrillas. Um, as a way of, of, as a form of torture, essentially. Um, so, I, I, again, I don't, those are sort of open questions, but at least we do see that states are much more likely to be reported as perpetrators than our non-state actors. Um, your other question about territory is an interesting one and not one that I um, explore, actually, in my project, but it's something that I could potentially do because it's, it's one of the topics that as you may know, in kind of some of the literature on civilian victimization, there are a number of, of theories relating to kind of territorial control. Um, and there certainly is some anecdotal evidence to suggest that uh, when, when rebels are kind of just seizing um, new territory, they may use rape as a kind of signal that they are now in control. Um, but I haven't kind of tested that in any sort of systematic way. started here yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> go ahead oh, um so i had a question is there a relationship between the success of these groups and their use of rape are these rebel organizations or governments are they more successful in their 
Uh, thank you for that question, because one of the things I get asked when I present this work is a, a lot of the military sociology literature on unit cohesion suggests that um, armed groups that have stronger levels of unit cohesion have more battlefield effectiveness. And so people will say, well, are you saying that if, you know, if groups want to have more battlefield effectiveness, should they be using more rape? Um, is that one of the kind of conclusions that we should draw from this? And the answer is no. Um, the, I, I try to draw a distinction between kind of two kinds of, of cohesion. Um, one is that, uh, and this draws on a lot of the kind of new literature on, on cohesion in the, in the military sociology realm, which is that there is a form of cohesion called task cohesion, which is essentially fighters' ability to accomplish a military goal. And then there's a separate form of cohesion, which is kind of interpersonal cohesion. Um, and it's possible for a well-trained group of people who really have no interpersonal cohesion or very limited, just simply don't like each other, to be very effective on the battlefield, um, have very high levels of task cohesion. Um, what I'm arguing about is that um, gang rape can increase social cohesion. So essentially has no relationship to the ability of um, an armed group to be effective on the, on the battlefield. And in fact, we see that in the case of, of the RUF in Sierra Leone. They were terrible fighters. They lost something like 80% of the, of the battles that they fought. Um, and so even though they committed you know, huge amounts, they can, and they committed huge amounts of rape. So we don't see the kind of social cohesion that was created within the RUF having any positive benefits for them in terms of battlefield effectiveness. Other questions? Yours? So I'm going to draw an analogy which you might seem very surprising, but might help you um, frame kind of the work. But look at it from a slightly different perspective. So interestingly enough, it reminded me of the human resource literature on how to attract people to an organization. And there's basically two broad ways to do this. One is you attract Some way you you have people there, you attune to motivate, ex tune to motivate their behavior. And then the other form is called kind of uh, now I'm relying on screening the intrinsically motivated types. Now this is a very different type of HR practice. I'm trying to look at the right kinds of people who are mission aligned. And the kinds of interventions that then organizations use to motivate, motivate people to do the tasks they should be doing are very, very different. And they remind me a lot about your work. The culture in corporations is very important. These are the people who are there for extrinsic reasons. So you need to think of something for them to develop culture, cohesion, work together, and complete experiences. Mm -hmm. But if you have the right type who are all there because well, we believe in gender equality, so I don't have to you know, do anything about steering or self-selecting for the right reasons, then you don't have to do as much work. So you know, for your future work, maybe that's an interesting framework mm -hmm. that you use um, supporting exactly what you're saying in a very, very yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. I hadn't I hadn't heard of that before, so I'll definitely look at that. Thanks. Um, yes. Of ethnicity and abduction, or do you 
Yeah, no, that's a fascinating question, and I haven't done that particular um, interaction. So I, I, that's something I can certainly look at, but I haven't done it now. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm just wondering, um, in terms of the fact that you're studying the old resonators and top down, and uh, Aaron Bain recently found that the LRA, that there was strong deterrence mechanisms for people to raise objection top down, and so therefore there's been so much denomination on the neck of the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so there's kind of two parts to the question. One about the LRA, because um, the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda clearly used abduction, um, but were very rarely reported to have committed rape of non-combatants. So it's a case that actually does not fit with my argument. Um, and in part, I think that's because the LRA is a very unusual kind of religious cult. Um, it's a very unusual case. It's a very atypical type of rebel group. Um, what is interesting about the LRA, as, as you mentioned, is that they, they had a lot of sexual violence within the group, um, and they had sort of an institution of forced marriage that was in part at least designed, or um, Aaron Baines, Chris Blattman, and others have argued that it, that institution of forced marriage was designed in part to prevent the rape of, of non-combatants. And it's not that they were wary of um, violence against non-combatants, because they commit terrible violence against non-combatants, but the, the kind of cult leader of the LRA was became obsessed with AIDS, essentially, uh, with his fighters not um, contracting AIDS. And so the, the idea or the argument goes that, th that he kind of instituted forced marriage within the group to prevent um, the possible um, transmission of, of sexually transmitted diseases to his fighters. Um, but uh, so that is a, this is a particular case that I think my argument actually doesn't apply, but I, again, I think that is a little bit of an unusual um, arm group. Um, so I think the, the kind of second part of your question is if, if, um, if gang rape has these kind of benefits of cohesion, why aren't commanders kind of encouraging the use of more gang rape? Um, and because um, I showed in some of the, of, the, of the quotations that they didn't seem to be doing that, at least not directly through orders. Um, and I think a, a part that gets back to this idea that a rape is, is, can be very costly. And so if, I think if commanders had sort of other means to create cohesion, they would draw on those means, um, that it was almost um, kind of a, a, an act of, of sort of a, a last act to kind of allow your, your fighters to engage in this particular form of violence in order to create those social ties. Um, that the commanders that I spoke with were um, sort of recognized both the benefits of, of social cohesion, but also were kind of concerned about some of these costs relating to sexually transmitted disease. Should we end there? Or, even though there's a lot of questions. Thank you so much.
helpful note on which to end the semester. Thank you very much for that excellent presentation. Um, there will be, as I said, this is our last meeting of the semester. However, I do want to announce that nominations are being accepted for WAP's three Class Day Awards, the Barbara Jordan Award for Women's Leadership, the Holly Taylor Sargent Prize for Women's Advancement, and the Jane Mansbridge Research Award for an Outstanding PAE for SIPA. And um, I, people can self-nominate. So um, you won't be self-promoting, you can do it quietly. <laughs> um, but people can self-nominate or you can nominate a friend. It doesn't only have to come from faculty. So uh, please do send in your nominations. They're due Friday, May 9th. So I think that's two weeks from tomorrow, right? Please send them in. All right, thank you all very much.